Hey there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have three medical students with me here today, and I'm not sure that any of you have been part of a podcast before except Lance. How about if we do some introductions, saving you for last, Miles? I'm Danny Hansen, a medical student at Rocky Vista University. I'm Lance Earnshaw. I'm also a medical student at Rocky Vista University. And I'm Miles Brooks. I'm, I'm also a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. Miles, tell us what you're thinking about going into at the moment. Uh, as of right now, I'm thinking of going into sports medicine. Sports medicine. So it's no surprise that you came up with the topic today for today, which is yoga in treatment of PTSD. That is correct. Uh, Miles, you really wanted this <laughs> topic to work for us. And I think one of the things that's very fascinating about where this will take us is the way that we ended up looking at the literature and how this might be something that you use or don't use in your practice in the future. Absolutely. I, I can't remember if I mentioned it to you originally where the idea came from, and it was listening to uh, once COVID-19 started and there's nothing to do, I just found myself driving around a lot and listening to audiobooks. And one of them was Body Keeps the Score. And in it, in the 16th chapter, it mentions uh, yoga as a treatment for veterans with PTSD. And so that's what initially sparked the idea. And then from there, uh, wanting <laughs> to find the results uh, that it works. And as our listeners will, will, will hear, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll keep it a big surprise <laughs> for a few more minutes. So let's start off by talking about uh, the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder and reviewing those criteria. The high-yield portion of the podcast is always at the beginning. I think we have one other podcast about PTSD that uh, is available to other listeners, but, but let's talk about the criteria. They break down into four or five categories, right? First of all, you need to have an event that's traumatic, generally where somebody is in fear of uh, personal safety, danger, potential of losing their life. Following that event that is significant, intrusive symptoms need to appear, and those can be things like nightmares, uh, physical or psychological responsiveness to uh, cues in the environment, dissociation might be a symptom that pops up. Uh, third cluster is avoidance, so behaviors change because of that. People find that they don't want to do the things that they previously did or don't go the places that they previously went. And there are changes in mood and cognition. You'll see people that become depressed, withdrawn, have uh, greater difficulty focusing on the things that are important in their lives. Uh, the fifth symptom, and this is, or the fifth criteria is one that we'll probably talk about just a little bit more. I think uh, when we talk about the physiology of PTSD and why we think yoga is a treatment for PTSD. And that is the arousal symptoms, and these are in part autonomic. Um, and in part not autonomic, so the startle response, uh, the elevation of heart rate, uh, those seem to be more specifically autonomic symptoms. But the arousal symptoms also include reckless behaviors, uh, irritability as well. And, and what role the autonomic sim symptom system has in those is a little less clear. Now, the board questions that are often associated with this are not as much about the criteria uh, for PTSD but rather how to differentiate this from a couple of other conditions, primarily acute stress disorder. And who has uh, the ability to differentiate that? I think one of the three of you is going to tackle that. When, when we look at acute stress disorder, a lot of the, the uh, qualifiers are similar. The big difference is the timing. And so uh, with acute stress disorder, it definitely needs to be more than three days of stress, but it needs to be less than a month. Uh, in order to meet that qualifier. And especially in a board question, it's gonna be very clear this has been a short-term thing versus 
a long-term thing. Or this has been a long-term thing rather than a short-term thing. Exactly. And so more than three days, less than one month for acute stress disorder, more than one, one month for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Now we're gonna use the phrase chronic PTSD, and I'm not sure we found the diagnosis for that in the DSM, but I think there is a specifier potentially. Uh, do any of you remember looking, seeing anything along those lines? I honestly don't. I don't remember either, and I think we've looked at, uh, I mean, I'm looking at the criteria right here, and I don't see that. So I think chronic PTSD is probably something that's defined in the literature more than it is in the DSM-5, or we're just missing it. And that happens with me with regularity. Uh, so the other thing that might be in the differential on a test question would be adjustment disorder. Uh, either of you, any of you have, uh, want to take a swing at how that might be differentiated in the test questions that you might see? I think one of the big things that I've noticed with adjustment disorder, and I, I like simplified patterns, it seems that adjustment disorder is generally a mood change associated with an event, but without many of those intrusive symptoms, uh, without the intrusions with the flashbacks, without major uh, dissociation things like that. I think it also doesn't mention avoidance or it, I, I think the arousal symptoms are also gone. I think the criteria is that the response is out of proportion of what might be expected. So if maybe uh, a young person uh, moves schools and we would expect that young uh, person to have difficulty in that transition, a young boy or a young girl, uh, then perhaps somebody who had out of proportion with the distress that might be caused by that uh, that might be an adjustment disorder, right? Exactly. And you would never expect for an adjustment disorder to last longer than six months. I didn't realize there was a timeline on that. Very good. So timelines are very important on the testing. All right, now that we have, <clears throat> excuse me, now that we've uh, discussed briefly the criteria, uh, treatments, FDA-approved treatments and first-line psychotherapies for this condition, let's tackle that. So medications, um, I'll start there. I, I can't always remember all of the FDA-approved medications for treatment of PTSD. I do remember that Sertraline has the FDA approval for PTSD, and I think one or two other SSRIs. There are other medications that are not approved that a lot of my students are under the impression are approved, and that is uh, Prazosin, right? Uh, often used for nightmares, but as far as I'm aware, it doesn't have an FDA approval. Seroquel is quite often used for treatment of uh, PTSD at the, at the VA, or at least it was about 15 years ago when I was there, and also does not have an FDA approval for treatment of PTSD. What about, uh, let's see, is it Danny? You uh, have something that's kind of interesting. What else is approved for treatment of nightmares in PTSD? Specifically for nightmares in PTSD, the FDA recently did give some breakthrough approval for an app called Nightware. That's W-A-R-E, Nightware. It works in conjunction with an Apple phone and watch, and the patient will put it on uh, before they go to bed. After a few days, the AI will start to learn the patient's sleep patterns. And once it's done that, once it starts to use the built-in heart rate and gyroscopic capabilities in the watch, if it appears that someone is having a nightmare, it will start at a, a low vibration and ramp up the vibration until the person has awoken, hopefully in theory, 
before uh, you know maybe their cortisol levels have started to raise too high to allow them to get back to sleep. There was a, a study that was just recently done that did show, according to the Pittsburgh Quality Sleep Index, that there, there was a little bit better sleep uh, in patients suffering from PTSD than placebo or a, a sham treatment. All right, so uh, very interesting. We now have an FDA-approved app for the treatment of PTSD. We have a couple of SSRIs that have FDA approval for treatment of PTSD. And then there are some treatments that the VA sees as first line, at least according to one of the articles from, what, five, six years ago. Yeah, so there's some psychotherapy. And one of those is prolonged exposure therapy. Uh, and the other is cognitive processing therapy. I think prolonged exposure is something that might show up on the exams that you look at. So uh, can you give me like a thumbnail version of how you understand prolonged exposure? So we're going to take what what caused or, or the inciting trauma that uh, is causing their PTSD. And I think we just kind of slowly, you know, in, in moderation, bring them into contact with, with the, the idea of that trauma or with some form of that trauma. We're not recreating the trauma in their lives, but we're just exposing them to that. That way it becomes less and, and showing them that that it's not going to hurt them anymore or something like that, just to try and reduce those symptoms that they have from that. From and then that CPT, also used in the, in the VA. Some of the articles that we looked at for yoga also came out of the VA, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, one other treatment that is often used and has, uh, from my perspective, a great deal of evidence with regards to continued use is EMDR. And I think we mentioned that in the other uh, PTSD podcast as well. So a number of treatments for PTSD. Now, are there any things that you should not use in treatment of PTSD? Uh, I have come across board questions in, in, in my study <laughs> where they give the option to prescribe a benzodiazepine. I think that it's important to, to that benzos are really only used for for panic disorders or panic symptoms for a patient in this type of situation. It is not a, a FDA approved treatment of PTSD. There seems to be a great deal of data that benzodiazepines not only are unhelpful but may even be counter therapeutic. So, avoiding benzodiazepines in treatment of PTSD seems like a great idea to me. All right, with that that behind us, we've now got the. Uh, the heavy lifting of shelf prep behind us. So those of you that are uh, ready to tune out, don't, because I think Miles has a pretty good story to tell here. Miles, uh, I want you to start off by telling me a little bit about why people looked at uh, yoga as a possible solution or treatment to PTSD. Um, they mentioned this a little bit in the veteran study that that they had found um, benefits for, for other people who, who were doing yoga. Um, and then you had mentioned some, someone going back to India in the like, early 1900s or something like that. Well, and the, I missed a little bit of that story. Yeah, there are these really great sto stories about uh, these really unusual things that seem to be associated with yoga in India where uh, people had remarkable control of their bodies. And there were some pretty amazing claims that were made. And I think uh, at least one physician, Dr. Wenger, and a physician from India, Dr. Bagchi, and I'm probably not saying either of those names correctly, they went back to India and did some research with um, some measuring tools to see how accurate these claims were. And uh, a fascinating story, and I'm hoping to be able to, to kind of understand that, that yeah. story better over time. 
Um, but but I think there's also now um, this goal. I think you gave me a mechanism of action article from Streeter, right, uh, Dr. Streeter, mm-hmm. and I think this is probably kind of where I'm headed with the question. Dr. Streeter makes this really great case for the overlap in a number of, of, of medical conditions, the role of stress in those conditions, and why uh, yoga may be a treatment for a number of conditions or maybe a unifying uh, aspect of treatment in some of those conditions. So talk to me a little bit about the Streeter article yeah. maybe as another way of asking the question. So that article, it mentioned a few things. It mentioned PTSD, it mentioned depression, I believe, and, as well as anxiety. And and they proposed a a physiological basis on how yoga might might help uh, improve symptoms with those uh, with the, with those things. And one of the proposed mechanisms had to, had more to do with the breathing technique mm-hmm. that happens during yoga, where we slow down our breath and we focus on on relating our breathing to our body postures, and almost as a way of grounding ourselves and. The proposed mechanism is that by changing the by changing our, our breath work that that's going to send afferent fire or, or afferent signals via the vagus nerve to our brains and that through mechanisms there that's going to affect a whole host of things such as our heart rate and and it's going to change the way that we respond to stress and it's going to help help us better control um, our autonomic our autonomic nervous system. That way we're not constantly in a sympathetic state, but we can get back to a parasympathetic state. So so I think that was one of the things that I was a little bit surprised by, right? He, he's making the case that we've ended up in this autonomic state or, or an imbalance in our autonomic and parasympathetic, parasympathetic uh, states. And that when we have a better balance, we have more heart rate variability. That's correct. Tell me a little bit about heart rate variability as you understand it, because I'm not sure I have a good sense of that. So heart rate variability was used as a measure of how well someone's body uh, manages their their autonomic nervous system going from the peripheral, or sorry, from the uh, sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic nervous system or as most people are going to know parasympathetic or sympathetic, excuse me, as, as fight or flight versus rest and digest. Um, and so we want heart rate variability. Heart rate variability shows that your body has that ability to adjust. And when you're, what they were saying in the study is that when you are in a constant state of stress, you lose a lot of that heart rate variability and therefore your body isn't as adapt to change and isn't as adapt to take care of itself. And that's when you're gonna have more of these stressful uh, symptoms that can cause a whole host of things such as anxiety, depression, they, they even mentioned mu- uh, muscle tension and headaches and different things like that. Atherosclerosis, cardiac load, exactly. hypertension, epilepsy seems to be affected as well, uh, PTSD, there are a number of things that seem to have this, uh, this uh, imbalance. I think he referred to that as an allostatic load, right? That's correct. And that allostatic load is the cost to maintain stability outside of what he called an optimal homeostasis. And that, uh, that energy cost of, of uh, maintaining stability in a high allosteric load seems to be something that costs our body physically over time. And I think that's the case that's being made. And it, I think there's some uh, reasonable data based on the, the references, the citations in this article that, you know what, 
when you are not managing stress well or when we, we when these signs are absent of heart rate variability, when the allostatic load is high, it seems like we are unhealthy and there seems to be a fair amount of evidence that correlates the two. I'm not sure I was able to read enough to determine causality. In other words, it wasn't clear to me that the direction was I'm, I have this uh, change in my heart rate variability, the allostatic load is high, therefore I increase or worsen these other symptoms. It wasn't clear to me that that was clearly the direction, but there's at least a fairly good correlation between a number of articles that were published, right? Exactly, and, and the idea there was that through uh, some, of the, some of these practices in yoga that they can change their heart rate variability. So yoga, these traditions that incorporate postures, meditation, chanting, and breathing, mm-hmm. right? And I was very impressed with uh, some of the things that they mentioned. For example, breathing, depending on changing your breathing, and I can't remember if you mentioned this just a moment ago, you can have a almost an immediate 40% effect on your heart rate by voluntary control over what is the most easily controlled autonomic function, right? Mm-hmm. That's a huge huge effect. Yeah. I was surprised by that. Um, I'm sorry, not a 40% variance in your heart rate, a 40% variance in anger, joy, sadness, and fear. You can change an emotion fairly dramatically by changing your breathing. I I think, Lance, you did some of the reading about the physiology of uh, breathing and how that may have neurologic correlates. Did you want to? I, I think you could probably go for about 15 minutes on this. Do you want to give us the? Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, uh, we'll, I've got half a bag of M&Ms version. <laughs> we'll slow it down a little bit. It, it obviously is a very complex uh, working of several different physiological pathways. The simplified version is as we breathe in, we change different states. One of which is the mediastinum suddenly has the pressure of the lungs pushing on it. The lungs have now been stretched, so the stretch receptors in the lungs also now are creating afferent impulses that are going back to the pons to change not only the parasympathetic output uh, by increasing that, but also decreasing the sympathetic output. And that that's a very well-studied pathway. So we definitely know that breathing and breathing exercises can be associated with decreasing uh, at least the the biological stress markers such as heart rate and things like that. What's really fascinating to me was that we talked earlier about fight or flight, right? You have fear and so your autonomic system can ramp up. But I think uh, Streeter makes the argument that you can tell your brain the the opposite by taking um, control away from the autonomic system and sending breathing signals back to the brain through those afferents that you're talking about to say, hey, no, there's no reason to be stressed at the moment. We can actually uh, stop. We don't need to uh, be fighting or flighting. And and I think, and I'm not sure that this is accurate or not, but in my mind, he about the same time he talks about this, he talks about mammals being the only uh, group of organisms that have myelinated vagal nerves. Right? So we have this myelinated vagal nerve, and it's almost like he's making the case that that myelinated vagal nerve gives us the ability to stop back and be, sit back and be rational about the actual fear that might be surrounding us and to respond not just with fear and fight or flight, but also with maybe some sort of more measured response depending on uh, how well we can uh, maybe respond to that uh, stimuli. I'm I'm resisting the urge to jump into some comparative uh, anatomy and physiology. That get that's a really cool idea. No, I was just going to add to that by saying I think 
that the, that the Streeter study, given the, the almost promising results that, that they were encouraging, as well with within like the last year, I want to say, the explosion of, what's a good word for this, just how the explosion of almost like the sexiness of breathing um, with the, if anyone's heard of like the William Hoff, Hoff method of, of breathing, there's a book that's, that came out uh, called Breath by James Nestor. And there was all of this, um, you know, all of this information out there basically saying that we can Im- improve our bodies, we can improve our minds, and we can improve so much of this just by breathing, which I can see why a lot of these researchers wanted yoga to work as a treatment. And while I, w- I will admit going into this, I also wanted it as a treatment, and it became hard for me to recognize my own bias or my own biases when I was reading through these. So I'm going to take a half step back. Um, the, the Streeter article is a hypothesis, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's interesting. I think the name of the journal this came from was Hypotheses, <laughs> right? And and Streeter makes really this great case about a possible mechanism of action for um, for yoga, right? To to be a treatment of of imbalances in the autonomic load in an allostatic load, so to speak, right? He, he wants this to be a treatment, or he's proposing a mechanism of action that would open this up as a treatment for a number of different ideas. And I think there's uh, maybe some evidence that, that yoga might be helpful in epilepsy. I, I'm now interested in looking at that, right? There's some evidence that it might be helpful in a couple of other things, perhaps even chronic pain, right? There's this story of how maybe GABA is increased in the brain through this activity. And we see GABA being used in, a, in treatment of a number of different kinds of pain, right? So things like uh, uh, gabapentin in treatment of chronic pain, and we see a couple, uh, VNS maybe, floods the system with more GABA through that afferent vagal nerve, right? All sorts of correlates and ideas that may be pieced together. And so we're now led to the idea of, well, if physiologically this makes sense, then we should try and do it since PTSD seems to have these autonomic components to it. There's an allosteric load, so to speak. And gosh, let's let's now look at the data for the trials that, that we were able to find in the use of... Um, yoga as a treatment for PTSD. Uh, where do you want to start? Uh, I say we just go in chronological order as far as when these studies happened, which I think the first one that I have was the veteran uh, yoga program. Uh, so this was Staples in 2013, if I have uh, the order right, and this was Veterans of War. I, I, I think there were other articles that had, uh, there, there was an unfortunate problem with, I mean, I, I don't, saying it this way, really minimizes it, but rape was a, a horrific problem associated with deployments. Uh, based on my recollection, there were a number of strategies used to, to use to try and address uh, theater rape, which uh, was uh, happening, I don't know at what rate, but this is, just to be clear, this is war-related trauma, not sexual trauma that does happen in the military as well. Is that the way you read this, the article? Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and what did they do? Um, so what they did was the, you mean as far as like... Yeah, what were the methods, so to speak, the thumbnail of the methods? Okay. Uh, so what they did was they had, see, I have this right. So they had 15 participants that were in, enrolled in the, in the study, and they used a, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, a, a yoga st- technique called 
Krishn, you know, I'm not even going to try. It starts with a K. K-H-Y-F is what you should look up if you really want to know because I, I would butcher it. And what they did was for one hour, twice a week, for six weeks, they had an instructor come in and, and they did this yoga with them. And then they also worked on breath work. And this is, I actually did look up how to pronounce this word. It's ujjayi, mm-hmm. ujjayi breath work to learn how to comfortably control their breath. And so that was the, the setup. So one hour, twice a week for six weeks. And notice there there wasn't a, uh, a, a control group. It was just the group who was uh, who was uh, participating in the yoga. So a before and after study. Exactly. Not, not a randomized control trial. Uh, certainly not blinded with yoga. Blinding a yoga trial would be probably very difficult, I can imagine. Yeah, that's correct. And there were a few parameters that were measured. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, it's funny, Miles. You're, you're, you have the appropriate <laughs> focus here. The other three of us are cracking up about the difficulties blinding yoga, and that's correct. And you're, you're kind of focused on the paperwork. We, we just thought it was funny. I honestly think you could blind yoga for me. I have no idea what it is. So you could lie to me and tell me I'm doing yoga, and we could. Well, I and, don't know. And one of the studies in the next one we're going to talk about, they tried to do that. Oh. And. Which I, I was kind of surprised at because I thought, how like how would you blind yoga? But they attempted to do it, and I'll explain that on, on the next one. So maybe we're all laughing for different reasons. <laughs> so that's probably why I didn't laugh. Okay. <laughs> so my silence is, is appropriate. Very good. Um, but So there were a few parameters that they measured on this. And uh, they measured uh, PTSD symptoms using the, PC, uh, the PCLM. So that's the... The PTSD checklist, mm-hmm. uh, modified maybe, is that what the M stands for? The M is the military version. Military version. I think we talked about this and maybe the CAPS in the previous uh, podcast, so we won't go back to that. All right. uh, they measured quality of sleep using the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. Uh, they measured, uh, they used something called the State Trait uh, Anger Expression Inventory, and that was used to measure anger. And they also used a quality of life uh, measurement. The, it's it's called the quality of life or the the outcome questionnaire, OQ forty five point two. Okay, the OQ is fairly well known. It's okay. probably one of those uh, things that we ought to talk about in one of these podcasts in the future. Um, and what they found was there was an improvement in in sleep quality. There was um, an improvement in in hyper arousal symptoms, but what they didn't find was any improvement. In PTSD symptoms, they didn't find any improvement in quality of life, and and they recognize this and they even admit this. But then they follow it up immediately by saying, "But you know, those who participated said that they loved it, and and they recommend it." I was impressed how well attended this was. Yes, mm-hmm. I think Miles, take home for me, and and tell me how fair it was. It felt like they had a lot of variables that they could look at. And they found a few that might not have uh, that might have been statistically significant, but they looked awfully hard to find those. Which ones? Uh, the two you mentioned. So the autonomic symptoms might have been better. Anger and sleep. Uh, let's see. No, I'm sorry. The most they could say was that there might be an effect on function. That was the only thing that se- daytime function. I think was the only thing that actually separated from pl- from uh, baseline. Right. Yeah. So I have. Start here, just on this on this table, um, hyperarousal, and, and and daytime dysfunction, which they took from the PSQI uh, as far as the the Pittsburgh sleep so, index that they were using. So there are a lot of things measured. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I didn't find is if they did some sort of uh, 
uh, what is it they call it? Um, the, the more variables you look at, the the more stringent the criteria become for having statistical statistical significance and. Uh, the name is escaping me at the moment for whatever reason. Okay. And I don't know if they did that, but it, it, I, I don't know that this is p-hacking necessarily, but it seems like they looked awfully hard to find something that was standing out and at the end so they could say, so there is something here that we should keep studying. I think you're right. Just looking here, it looks like there's honestly about 20 different variables that they tried to measure, and that's just an estimate I could count them, but. Regression analysis exactly. is, is, is quite often what we talk about in this setting. Whether they did regression analysis or not, I don't know, but they have almost as many variables that they're looking at as they did uh, study subjects. They have more variables than they do study subjects. And, and I get that this is early, right? And I think they're trying to look for something, and, and quite often in early trials of any treatment, whether it's a medication or a, a psychotherapy, it, it is about tolerability, and, and this was tolerable. And I think that's a pretty important point to take home. Absolutely. And, and perhaps the number of trials just wasn't enough. So let's talk about trials that had a few more weeks in it. How does that sound? Yeah, we'll go ahead that. and put this one to the side for a few minutes. For sure. And, and one, of the, one of the difficulties I, I do want to bring up right now is just the fact that with all of these, with all of these trials, one, you know, you, you can think about how difficult it is to, sorry, you, you can think about how difficult it is to get people to, to come to these yoga therapies, you mentioned how incredible it is that they had such good adher adherence in the in the veteran study, and that would be hard. And that's I think that's a big part of why some of these sample sizes are quite small. And not only that, but you'll see that as we go through each of these studies, the type of yoga that they use is going to be different because there's many different styles of yoga out there. Well, I think uh, there the four aspects of it could be variably tested as well. So all of these studies, um, ha one of the things I think you're pointing out is look at the type of yoga, see where the focus is, see whether that focus is on posture, meditation, chanting, breathing, and so forth, right? Whether How that works. And if you try to replicate that based on studies, you'd want to look at it maybe uh, within that context. Exactly. So the next study that we're moving on to uh, came out in 2014, and this was to uh, to those who were suffering with PTSD because of what they called intimate partner violence. And so those can be, you know, wh whether it was rape or whether it was uh, physical attacks, anything that would fit within, within that category. And, and specifically for them, they had to use what they called trauma-sensitive yoga, which is where you know, there's a lot of postures and there's body movements in yoga and there's instructors who might help you. But it has to be taken into consideration that, um, that these patients are there specifically because of some kind of, of trauma that's related to, to, their, to their bodies. And so they had to be careful when talking about the kinds of verbal commands that they give when getting into poses or when to, when to touch or when to not touch the patients. So this was a, a, a style of yoga that was specific to that. And this one uh, was a, a two, uh, 12, so oh, let me back up a little bit. In our previous study, there wasn't a control group. This one, they said, okay, we're gonna do a control group. And Lanson mentioned, well, how are you gonna you know, do, a, do a blind study? So on this one, what they did was, with, with the two groups, one of them would go for about an hour and 45 of, of, a, of, of psychotherapy followed with half an hour of yoga. The other group would have the same psychotherapy, but intermixed would be stretches and movements that weren't qualified as yoga, but might confuse them to think, oh, maybe we are doing yoga. Okay. That makes sense. 
Um, as far as, I'm trying to find out, see how many people were in this study. Do you remember how many were in this one? I don't think I read this study. I don't remember who this was. Well, I, can't, I, I, know that, I know that none of them, except for one of them, really had that many. Oh, here it is. 17. <laughs> So again, a, a very limited size study. Very and limited. was that 17 per arm or 17 total? That was 17 total. Okay, so very limited. And uh, outcomes, my guess is, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that they didn't really find statistical significance, but they still concluded that it was helpful. You know, that, that's, you, you said it basically word for word. And what really upset me about this one is they measured baseline uh, levels of depression, uh, PTSD, and anxiety within the group. And they switched halfway, I think they switched at four weeks because they didn't like the way that they had measured PTSD in the group, and they switched it to four weeks. And then they say, oh, here's our results, and they give one table as far as those specific results go. And they only show the baseline for the start of the study, and they don't show what it was at the end of the study. But they do show the results of a questionnaire. And the only thing that I could possibly gather from the questionnaire was the only one that really showed a difference. There was a question that said, this questionnaire made me think about things I didn't want to think about. And that started off as 56% and then changed to 38% towards the end. And that was one of the few remarkable improvements of what they actually gave us that I could find. And so it's like, hey, they, they set it up. There, there was a, a control group and the treatment group, but then they don't there's not really an outcome no. in terms of PTSD. No. Now, w did they explicitly say that this was about tolerability of the intervention, or did they, or were they looking for a treatment effect? Do you know? They did mention about the tolerability of, of the treatment, and I think just trying to see how many of them, because of this group, not all of them had PTSD. Okay, so they, that becomes they, even a little more complicated. Exactly. This wasn't that wasn't a, a a qualifier to become part of the study. This was of women who had. Intimate partner violence. Um, exactly. So this was a study about intimate partner violence, but they've put a title in it that includes PTSD, if I recall correctly. That is correct. All right. So uh, we're still, I know you want PTSD to be treated by yoga. Maybe the next article will do this for us. Maybe. <laughs> um, so the next article, um, there were... Let me, let, me, let me break in here if I can for do. just a second. So this is the price. Okay. This is the Spinoza... Spina, Spinozola and Vanderkolk group. And I think they published uh, two or three, four articles that we came across. That is correct. And I think, is this this, this shorter? This is the second one, but I'm going to reference the first okay. one. So, so tell us about uh, the two studies. And uh, actually, let me try. Yeah, go for it. Uh, two different studies. The first study uh, had about 60 people. 64, correct. Yeah, they, they actually had a pretty good number in that, and uh, they followed up at about a year and a half after 10 weeks of yoga, and not only did they not really find a difference between groups at the uh, end of the treatment intervention, they also didn't find a difference between groups at the one and a half year mark, but people who kept doing yoga seem to be doing better was their conclusion. So maybe yoga is helpful, although it's, it's also you know, difficult to conclude that way because there's no difference between groups at that point, right? So the intervention doesn't necessarily help. And that was the first study, right? That was the 10-week. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, the very legitimate concerns is, well, maybe we didn't give it enough time, right? Because these are, these are difficult studies. And so the second study rolls around um, and uh, 
kind of the conclusions would, I, I would say, blow our doors off, right? <laughs> they would. It, it works. So how about, what if I do this? What if I read what the results were, Okay. but then I'll tell you what actually happened in the study. Okay, let's do that. So read the results. Okay, so the results are these, and they're going to sound amazing. So, <clears throat> so overall, well, actually, we'll, we'll start with this one right here. So all but one of the completers no longer met the criteria for a PTSD diagnosis one week after treatment ended, and two achieved asymptomatic, uh, asymptomatic status. Uh, at the two-month follow-up, 67% of the women did not meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. Um, and that's going to all sound probably somewhat strange until I tell you how many participants were in the study. How many participants were in the study? There were nine. And I think there I, were nine. Yeah, I think there, there were nine, nine, participants. nine participants. So in a small trial of 20 weeks without a control group, this looks pretty good. Mm -hmm. And maybe it builds on the previous article that says people who go into yoga and keep doing yoga might have more benefit than people that don't. So maybe it builds on that. Maybe there's a case that starts to be made. Exactly. Are you left ready to prescribe yoga to your patients for PTSD? <laughs> I did read an article that said yoga doesn't hurt. So, <laughs> and, and let me throw in one more thing that when I saw this, I kind of lit up in excitement was I looked at the name uh, Bessel van der Kolk and I looked, I looked him up because he was in two of the studies and realized he was the author of the book, uh, Body Keeps the Score, which had originally got me interested in the, in the subject to begin with. So I saw that and I saw that as like a sign from God that, oh, this has to be true because I happened to stumble upon his name in a study and, and, and he was the one that got me into it in the first place. And, and so seeing that, you know, I mean, th that sounds nice. Eight out of nine patients uh, no longer meeting the clinical criteria for PTSD, but then there was no uh, control group on that study. The sample size is, is, is still small and it's one of those things that I, I have a really hard time admitting that there isn't enough science here at all to say definitively that it is going to help with, with, with PTSD. You really want yoga to be a treatment for this. I want it because I like the idea. You know, I told you I'm, I'm going into sports or I'm, I plan on going into sports medicine. And so the idea of anything that gets your body moving and, and, and breath work, the idea of that being a treatment just sounds wonderful to me. It has to work, right? Because it it's your to. body and it's exercise. So so I want to go back. I, I mentioned before, one of, the, one of the very interesting articles that I read on evidence-based medicine was the idea that in the 70s, we had a number of treatments that were responsive to physiological medic, uh, situations and physiology that we might have determined was abnormal. But we had never done the trials to say this actually treats the problem. So just because you know the physiology of, your, physiology of a problem doesn't mean that you know the treatment of the problem by addressing the physiology. And, and I think you, you made the case, I think you're still desperately clinging to the idea that, <laughs> that yoga works. I know you want it to really, really I do. Bad. I, I want it to. And, and to be honest, I kind of want it to as well. I just, but think about this. You said there's no harm to it. What if somebody goes into yoga treatment and has no benefit to their PTSD, it keeps them from participating in other forms of therapy. Have we now harmed the patient? In a roundabout way, you can make the argument that yes, that we've kept them. Wow, you're desperately hanging on yoga. <laughs> <laughs> I, Do you really, I mean, obviously. So, so let me say this, I, 
based off of this evidence, I wouldn't prescribe yoga as a treatment for PTSD or even necessarily as an, uh, as an um, adjunctive treatment for PTSD. Um, if someone asked me if, if it would benefit them, I, I think if someone goes into it wanting it to, to help treat them, and if they have the idea that, that they, they want to do yoga for those benefits, I'm not going to tell them no. For the benefits of health? Is that what you're saying? Or are you telling a patient, are you saying that you wouldn't stop a patient from treating PTSD with yoga if they wanted to? I think I would tell them what we've learned here, which is that this science doesn't necessarily say, or let me back up, because that's even giving it maybe a little bit more credit. <laughs> I, 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 I'm really, really pushing it here. <laughs> I am. I'm really dancing on that line. Um, I would probably recommend that they listen to this podcast. And, <laughs> um, and I guess what I'm saying is if a patient comes to me and, and asks if this is a good alternative treatment, I would probably say no. I would yeah. probably say no. And one thing that I did come across in, in all of this is, is maybe what's the better area to focus on, which is, and this was in a, in a, in a different study, make sure I have the right papers here, and it was based off of our ability to prevent PTSD. And you know, especially with, you know, if we look at, at the veteran study, if you look at the, at the subsequent wars that we've been in, the rate of PTSD, it appears to, de to be declining. However, that could be just because some of the PTSD hasn't started yet in, in some of those, but, but it still I've, looks as if it's declining. I've al also thought that there's a tremendous difference between a conscripted, a conscripted army and an all-volunteer force, right? So the, true. the, uh, true. the forces that were involved in the uh, OIF and OEF were volunteer forces ostensibly. There were many people that didn't want to be there. I don't think that no, was yeah, the case, but, but I think that is a significant uh, difference between those two kinds I, of things. I also think that we should, we're, we should recognize that the military has tried very hard to recognize PTSD and make, the, make our soldiers aware of of what it is and, and how to get treatment for it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would have to applaud their efforts yeah. in that regard. Absolutely. Yeah, when I was deployed, I know that there were uh, extensive um, efforts made and resilience, building resilience was one of those things that uh, focused on preventative uh, approaches. Miles, I, I know that you, probably the best case for uh, yoga, I think you're going to tell me, is to try and prevent PTSD. No, actually. That, oh. That's not what I'm about oh. to say. <laughs> <laughs> can you give it, so that uh, you guys can make it to your uh, class uh, without being terribly late, can you give me Ooh. a thumbnail of the last article can. and then we'll, we'll close it down pretty shortly. So this article, it was, I, I, the reason why I even dove into this article was to look at who's at risk for PTSD, who in this country, you know, who, who has PTSD. And their opening line is that PTSD should be one of the most preventable mental disorders. And with the prevalence of it, you know, uh, with a different article previously, I mentioned that approximately one in three women in the United States uh, having experienced rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner in her lifetime. And a third, I mean, that, that, that's, that's huge. Unbelievable, that's, isn't it? And then on this, this study that I'm talking about now, talks about the percentage of people who have these kind of encounters, what percent of them will develop PTSD? And, and those are highest for things such as being beaten by a spouse or partner, being raped or being sexually assaulted. And so what they did in this study was they looked, it was a retrospective study where they looked at 47,000 cases of PTSD and they went through all these different parameters. And what they did was they 
well, let me say this first. Of those 47,000 cases, about 4% of them would go on to develop PTSD. And so they took those 47,000 cases and they divided them into 20 different groups based off of the parameters that they believed would have someone be more likely to get PTSD. And here's what they found is that in their first group, which they called the group that was the most at risk, of that first group, 50% of them would go on to develop PTSD. Of the second group, let me see if I have what the second group was. And of the second group, I think it was, oh, 8.4% of them would go on to develop PTSD. And then it went down from there, down to smaller numbers. And so basically what they were saying with this is, we have the parameters and, and we have the algorithm to basically determine who's going to be at risk to develop PTSD based off of whatever demographics that they're a part of or whatever criteria that Previous we now have. Previous trauma, I think, is another significant. 100%. Yeah. And so since we have that ability, it would be nice if we could just help prevent that in the first place. And one of the things that they mentioned is that as medical providers, we're not that good at screening for um for intimate partner, uh, intimate partner violence and those types of things. And that would be one of the biggest areas where we could intervene. It Absolutely. Like, yeah. And so I think that while yoga doesn't necessarily have a strong case, I think this does. Screening does. You know, screening is an interesting question. I, I have a younger brother who's a little bit of a skeptic. And so, he, you know, when I have made the case at times in the past that something may not hurt, he has responded similarly to how I did with you, which is, what about the cost of time? Does that interfere with the therapy that might help somebody get better? Are you maintaining the illness by, you know, uh, suggesting that that yoga would be a treatment for PTSD when we have two very two or three very solid uh, psychotherapies, uh, an app that's helpful for nightmares, and and potentially medications that help? And the answer, I think, is yes. And screening gets into a completely different area that's very very difficult, but it sounds like if this is a preventable illness, there's at least something more that should be looked at here and whether the value of screening does pay off. So I, I'm interested in seeing where this goes eventually. Yeah. And that was for me just a very service level dive into that. You know, I, as, as you know, I, I was spending all of my time in yoga, wasn't happy with the outcome, but at least there's this, which you know, can, can still be explored as, as a possible. Would it be okay if I ask a tough question? I'm nervous, but 100% go for it. You really wanted yoga to work. I did. Had you found one article that suggested that it did, and another six or seven that were sort of like the ones that we read, which felt like they wanted it to work, and maybe they saw something with what they were doing, but the data just didn't really support the idea that we should be using it as a treatment, how much would the eight or nine articles weigh against the one that said, yeah, go for it with this, this, you know, this, is, this is the treatment? I think right now looking retrospectively on, on this hypothetical situation, it's easy for me to say, oh no, I'd probably side with the majority. <laughs> but I'll be honest, I know that I have my biases. I know I, I wanted it to work. And so I think it's fair for me to say there's a chance that I might have clung to that article. And then there's a chance I could have said, no, their, their study was better. Their study, you know, they, they, they blinded the patients. There was you know, a control group, there's this kind of thing, and theirs was just set up better. The measures were more effective, and I think exactly. that is something that makes the case. I do think one of the most challenging things for any physician, and including me, 
is to abandon a belief that I've had, whether it's that a certain medication is helping a certain patient, or whether it's a group of medications are the best treatment for a certain condition, or you know, it doesn't matter. One of the greatest challenges I have is taking the data when it's something that I feel strongly about and being objective. So I don't, I don't think you're alone on this. And I'm actually really glad that you know, I, I teased you a lot about this before the podcast, right? Uh, perhaps even mercilessly. <laughs> Absolutely. It, uh, it was unrelenting. Oh, it, it was, was It was terrible. <laughs> um, I, I should be a better attending and I'll work on that, on being more sensitive to uh, the needs of my students because it's not fun to be teased um, as a way to learn. And uh, I thought you did a great job with it. And I, I'm very impressed with how you're able to, at the end of all of the articles, kind of say, as much as I want this to be right, this isn't a treatment for PTSD yet. Sounds like we're breaking up with yoga and I feel it. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, guys, thank you so much. Uh, are you guys uh, familiar with the uh, sign off that we have? I'm not. Uh, so I'll say uh, thanks, guys, for joining me. Team out, and you guys respond, team out. All right, guys, thanks so much for joining me. Team out. Team, team out. out.